Hi, I'm Dr. Will Bostock from Cambridge Progressive Medicine. This podcast aims to assist you in taking control of your own health, well-being and happiness using a combination of Western medicine, psychotherapy, thought work and lifestyle. The podcasts are designed to be used in conjunction with working face-to-face with me, but I've made them freely available and you're welcome to listen to them independently. And if you do, I hope you find them helpful. If you would like to work directly with me, you can visit my website at www.cambridgeprogressivemedicine.com. When people come to see me because they are suffering with depression or anxiety, I sometimes ask, what do they mean by this? Their opening statement might be something like, I need help with my depression or with my mental health. And I ask, what does this mean to them? What do they think mental illness is? And I often get back a blank stare, as though I'm trying to mock and dismiss them, or I'm just an idiot. What kind of doctor doesn't even know what depression is? But I'm not trying to wind people up, or to just be a smartass. It's a serious question. We talk about depression and anxiety a lot in our society, but many people, including doctors, nurses, and probably even some psychiatrists, are not that clear in their own minds what we are actually talking about. Even if we are clear in our own minds, we are certainly not always in agreement with each other. A central theme of this series is that we are always responsible for our own health. Not for any moral reason, but because we are the ones with the most power to influence it, and by a very wide margin. If we are going to be responsible for our own mental health, it is important that we have a clear understanding of what we mean by mental health and mental illness. If we are not clear about this, we may struggle to find the most effective strategies for managing our problems, and will run the risk of inadvertently adopting harmful coping mechanisms. You may not agree with my opinion about the nature of mental health problems. It is just an opinion. It is not doctrine. But I would like you to at least consider it, and to approach it with an open mind. For me, this viewpoint is empowering, and improves our chances of being able to make positive influences in our own lives. And because of this, I think it can be a helpful way of understanding depression and anxiety. Okay, here goes. Anxiety and depression are not diseases. They are symptoms. What do I mean by this? Take pain, for example. It's a good example because depression and anxiety might be considered to be a type of pain. There is no disease that's called pain. Pain is a symptom, an experience that we feel in our bodies, and has many different causes. The disease is the underlying cause of that symptom. As we've discussed previously, for any one symptom, there are hundreds of potential causes. For example, tummy pain is a symptom And this could be caused by a variety of different diseases, such as diverticular disease or inflammatory bowel disease, 
or by things that we don't normally consider to be diseases, like trapped wind. Anxiety and depression are the same. They are symptoms, and there are probably thousands of different underlying causes or diseases that produce these symptoms. For the vast majority of instances of depression and anxiety, we really have no idea what the underlying biological process or the disease is. Now, the keen listener will realise that this is not too dissimilar from our position with physical symptoms. Whilst we understand a lot of disease processes that may produce physical symptoms, because humans experience such a wide variety of symptoms, the majority of these are not explained by any one particular disease. And the same is true for anxiety and depression. It is likely that the causes of the symptoms of depression and anxiety are very different for different people, and that there are a wide variety of different underlying disease processes that can produce these symptoms. And just like with pain, often they can be produced by things that we do not normally consider to be diseases as such, like with trapped wind causing the abdominal pain. It is important to understand that this does not make the symptom any less severe or unpleasant. And it does not mean that we are any less entitled to care and compassion. Although it may mean that the most effective method of treatment might be different to what we originally thought. Trapped wind, despite not normally being considered a disease, can actually cause pretty severe abdominal pain. I have personally seen several people in A&E with crippling abdominal pain that has completely settled following a good fart. We also previously discussed the idea that statistically, for any individual symptom I see, it is more likely that no medical cause will be found. This is because physical symptoms are incredibly common, while serious diseases are thankfully relatively rare. Studies have shown that the average person experiences around five symptoms every week, and only about 10% of people manage to get through a single week with no medical symptoms at all. When I used to work in A&E, my favourite game was betting on the outcome of investigations or blood tests. The standard bet was a Costa coffee. The safe money is always on a negative test. No heart attack, no appendicitis, no intracranial bleed. I have won a lot of coffee because I know that symptoms are far more common than serious diseases. Of course, we still do the test. I may be willing to bet a coffee on it, but I'm not going to bet on people's health. The same rule applies for depression and anxiety. For the majority of us, our symptoms of depression and anxiety are probably not caused by a disease as such, but rather are the result of the thoughts that we think. In general, we do not feel sad or anxious for no reason. These emotions and physical sensations in our body are the direct results of the thoughts that we are thinking, of the sentences that we have in our minds. Sometimes the thoughts that are producing the emotion may be at a subconscious level, but if we search for them, we can normally find them. If I feel anxious before an exam, it is not the exam itself that's making me anxious, but a thought in my mind about it. I might fail, and that would make me a failure. 
I might lose the respect of my family, friends or colleagues. I might lose out on a lot of time and money preparing and paying for a retake. These sentences might not be in the forefront of my mind as I take my seat trying to suppress my nausea, but they are still the underlying cause of the sensation. If I thought and really believed that I was going to ace the exam, then I wouldn't feel anxious. In fact, it's more likely I would feel excited at the opportunity to show off my skills. We all know that if we think a bad thought about ourselves, this will produce a bad feeling or emotion. If I think the thought, nobody likes me because I'm too short, this will make me feel sad. If we get into a pattern of continually thinking bad thoughts about ourselves and the world, we will also continually have bad and negative emotions. Continuous negative emotion is what the psychiatrists refer to as depression. If the cause for our mood disturbance is the thoughts that we are thinking, then the treatment is to change those thoughts. It doesn't matter how many antidepressants I take. If I continue to think, nobody likes me because I am too short, I will continue to feel sad. This is why when we use other mood-altering drugs, they tend to magnify what we are already feeling. It is commonly understood that alcohol can help us to have a good time. But if we are already feeling low, it tends to make us sadder. If the key to improving our mental health is changing our unhelpful, painful thoughts, the treatment must be mindfulness, psychotherapy, thought work and our lifestyles. We need to be careful that we do not make the situation worse for ourselves, as doctors and patients and as a society, by viewing these symptoms as a disease as something that is fundamentally outside of our control, that needs to be treated by somebody else, with mind-altering chemicals. To do so may deprive us of the self-belief and motivation that we need to get better. Now, I want to clarify something. I am not saying that there is never a physical or biochemical basis to the symptoms of anxiety and depression what medically we might refer to as organic depression. I am not saying that anxiety and depression is all in your head. On the contrary, I expect that biological factors always have a role to play. I am also certain that for some psychiatric symptoms, there are clear-cut disease processes that are the primary driving force behind them. There are already lots of examples of this known to Western medicine. Wilson's disease, for example, can present with psychiatric symptoms, and very common conditions, such as Alzheimer's disease, can cause significant mood disturbance and personality change. There are undoubtedly thousands of other disease processes that Western medicine simply knows nothing about. The problem, though, is exactly that. We know nothing about them. For today, right now, it can't really help us to get better. Maybe in the future we will know more and we'll be able to treat some people with depression with targeted therapies aimed at an underlying autoimmune or metabolic disease. But unfortunately, that day is not today. Even as new disease processes are discovered, it is likely that they will only benefit a very small subset of people 
since not everyone will be suffering from the same disease. All is not lost though. Although Western medicine has not yet caught up with the vast complexity of the human mind, or the incredible complex interaction between body and mind, there is still plenty that we can do to promote good mental well-being. By creating the optimum environment in our lives for human growth, we can repair and heal and be well. By looking after our physical, mental and spiritual well-being, we can find balance and with it health. As we have already discussed, physical and mental health cannot really be separated, and the key to both lies in the thoughts that we think and the things that we do. When people come to see me with symptoms of depression, they often want me to tell them if I think that they are depressed. In my medical opinion, do I think they have depression? Are they clinically depressed? I don't think this is a very helpful way to understand depression. Suppose I say yes, you are depressed. What does this mean? What difference does it make? People want to distinguish between feeling a bit low and having depression. But personally, I don't think this is a helpful thing to do. The treatments for feeling a bit low and for having depression are exactly the same. The diagnosis doesn't help you in any way. For me, the important question is, are you suffering? If the answer to this is yes, then we need to do something about it. Regardless of if you are suffering because things have become a bit too much, or because you have depression. Suffering is not a competition, and we cannot have a monopoly on suffering. We do not have to meet a certain threshold before we are absolved from blame and responsibility and become deserving of care and sympathy. If you are feeling low or are experiencing anxiety that is interfering with your enjoyment of life, if you are unable to live the life you want to live, then you have a problem. You have a problem that is deserving of love, care and attention. You have a problem that you are not to blame for, but that you are responsible for. You have a problem that you owe it to yourself to do something about. You can call that problem depression and anxiety, or you can call it being overwhelmed, or you can call it the blues. It doesn't matter what you call it. What is important is that you can cut yourself some slack, that you can recognise the problem without beating yourself up for having it that you can approach the situation with loving-kindness and with compassion for yourself. You do not need a diagnosis to give you a licence to have this compassion. It is also important that you don't allow a diagnosis to take away your responsibility, and with it, your power. If thinking of your problem as depression is empowering for you, if it helps you to find compassion, and with it strength to find solutions, then it will be a helpful diagnosis. If, however, it causes you to abdicate your responsibility, if the diagnosis is used as a reason to avoid facing your reality, for dealing with your demons, if it causes you to turn not to self-compassion, but to self-pity, then it will be a harmful diagnosis. 
For the vast majority of us, the reason we feel anxious and low is because we are thinking bad thoughts about ourselves, about our situation, about other people, and about the world. It is not because we are suffering from a medical disease that needs treating by doctors. The treatment is to stop thinking bad thoughts, and the way to do that is through mindfulness, psychotherapy, thought work, and lifestyle. Only we have the power to change the way we think, how we feel, and what we do. And so if we want to get better, we have to accept responsibility for the way we think, the way we feel, and what we do. This is the case, irrespective of whether or not a doctor has labelled you with a diagnosis of depression, anxiety, ADHD, or personality disorder. I'm going to leave it there for today, but I'm aware that there is an elephant in the room. What about antidepressants? What about sertraline and venlafaxine, serotonin and noradrenaline? I have not forgotten about these, and of course, they do have a role to play. But I think these medications are often misunderstood by both doctors and patients, and so I'm going to give them a whole episode to themselves. We will call it part two, and hopefully you will join me here next time. In the meantime, I have no set homework for you this week, but since episode nine's homework was to go and have psychotherapy, I suspect that you have plenty to be getting on with. (laughs) 